Ephesians 4, verse 17 uh, to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, uh, sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, comma, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Father, uh, I just ask that Holy Spirit would um, become primary teacher now. Um, do your work of guiding to Jesus that we may see the Father, that we may behold your glory. We may see and savor you today. May you be our chief desire today. Be, be that today. Do that now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My great desire. Every time I teach and open the Bible to you, Three Rivers Community Church, is for you to see and savor above all things Jesus Christ. That is, that is the driving nuclear reaction behind me. Is that you would see and savor and enjoy Jesus Christ. Everything I always say is intended to drive you away from the rebellion and to drive you toward Christ. One of the great lies of preacher hangover that I experience almost daily, I, you know, even in my profession, I teach and I teach systematic theology, I teach apologetics, I, I, teach, I teach Bible and this is a constant emotional outlay, and and I am and I, I reach the end of the day, and I'm emotionally exhausted, and that's when I'm at my weakest that I will ever be. That's when I am the most weak, and the lie that continues to pummel me year after year after year is that you should back off. You just need to back off. You're too passionate, and sometimes people hear passion as anger. You need to be. More relaxed. You need to chill a little bit. But the Lord in His grace always reminds me that what if we really are at war? Let's say we really were physically at war and I were your commanding officer. Would I be good to you if I said, hey, sit back. Have a Mai Tai. Watch the bullets fly. Relax. Wouldn't be a good CO. A good commanding officer would say, keep your head down. Keep your eyes focused on the mission. Weapon at the ready. Advance. Advance. Move forward. Watch out. The enemy wants to kill you. The enemy is not your friend. The mission is there. We're here. We need to be there. 
that, that would be a good commanding officer. That would be major winners. That would be good. And the reality is, guys, we are at war. The reality is there was a fall. The reality is that we are currently, because of Christ's work, recovering, taking ground in the fall by the advance of the kingdom, by God's means, toward God's mission, and you are not safe. We are at war. And, and today's message, today's passage has that thrust in it. It's all week. I was like, just relax. Relax. Don't, there's no emergency. There's no, and, and the more I thought that, the more uncomfortable I got. So just say this. I'm gonna just be what God's made me to be. I really believe the Bible. We as your pastors really believe the Bible. As your church, as a church, we believe the Bible. And it tells us in the meta-narrative that we are at war. You today are more vulnerable than you think you are. Our passage today has this thrust to it to remind us as we are learning to walk worthy in the mysterious gospel that has now broken down the walls of division between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, and in Christ and under the authority of King Jesus, we're one body. All nations, one people. That under this mysterious, glorious work of the gospel, we're to walk worthy in it. And walking worthy in it is a war. It's a struggle. And so I can't just speak as though bullets aren't flying. They are flying. Paul's going to tell us in chapter 6, you need to take the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one because they're there. They're flying. And he's instructing the Ephesians now in, in these practices that they are to now work out that come from the unifying work of the gospel. He's told us at the beginning of this chapter we're to walk worthy. That there is a way to walk worthy in this glorious, mysterious, unifying work of the gospel over which Christ sits as the head. We're to walk worthy by supplying everything King Jesus has gifted us with in the church. We hit that last week. There's no ungifted people in this room. And you've been gifted by the Lord Jesus to serve the body for His glory. Gifts aren't given to those isolated from the body because gifts aren't for you to have an experience. They're for me and everybody sitting around you. Everybody in your radical life group. And so if you're isolated from the body, don't expect the gifts. They're not for you. They're for everybody. And He told us that we grow as we grow in Him by what every joint supplies. So, we walk worthy. And we walk worthy by supplying what Jesus has uniquely given us for everybody else. In unity. And now Paul's going to instruct us that walking worthy also looks like putting off our old selves and putting on the new humanity. Now, putting on the new self is going to be taught too. I got six pages in and realized that, that there's nine more pages to write. And so I broke it into two this week. So we'll come back and finish off next week. So 
We're going to see that walking worthy in this unifying work of the gospel looks like taking off the old self and putting on the new self and living in this new humanity. And really what we're going to look at next week will be nine particular methodologies that we can apply to taking off the old self and putting on the new. But this week we're going to just get our way, we're going to wind our way to that point. So we're to live out this mysterious gospel of the kingdom in unity by putting off the old self. It's corrupted and we're to put on the new self. And this new self is what we are to be in the church. But it's also a foretaste of what we will fully be in the coming kingdom. Quick outline of our three points today. Point number one is going to be Paul telling us what not to do. Second point is going to be Paul reminding us of who we are. And then the third point is going to be what to do. So Paul's going to tell the church at Ephesians, he's going to tell us today what not to do. He's going to tell us who we are. And he's going to tell us what to do. By the way, that's good parenting too. Don't do this because you are a jolly. Here's what you do. Don't do this because you belong to Christ. But here's what you do. That's what we're going to see today in our text. Before we launch into these points, I'm reminded, reminded through listening to people I trust and reminded by good teachers of the gospel and reminded just all the time as I do proper reading and research that particularly I think for anybody who communicates and speaks and teaches for their vocation, that it is easy for us to highlight those things we really enjoy, a particular truth. And we, we can highlight that truth to the point that we miss its complementary truth. And we ignore those complementary truths. This passage has one of those complementary truths in it. At this body, we emphasize the justifying work of the gospel. In Romans 8, 1, we are not condemned in Christ. But in that same chapter, Paul is going to tell us in verse 13 that those who are justified also put to death the deeds of the flesh. In this passage, we, we've been reminded in the book of Ephesians that we are elected in Christ. And in that elective work of the gospel, we are justified. We have the Holy Spirit, right? But we're going to learn that those who have the Holy Spirit and those who are working in the gospel out this glorious thing God has made us to be will put off the old self. So today we're going to see the necessary reality that we're to work out what we say we believe. So let's start with our first point, verse 17 and 19, and that is what to do. What are we to do? If we're to walk worthy, how is Paul teaching us how to walk worthy? Well, verse 17 to 19 tell us. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Gentile, when you read Gentile, let that equal unbeliever. To the Jewish mind, Gentile were those outside the faith. So when Paul says you must not walk as unbelievers do, right? In the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. 
Now here's just just an important statement. If Paul has to remind the Ephesians and us not to act like what we used to be, right? He says, this I say to you and testify in the Lord, you must no longer do this. If he has to exhort us to walk worthy by not acting like what we used to act like, then it stands to reason that it is possible for us to act like what we used to be. Right? That being the case, Paul comes and he says, you can't, must not, walk the way unbelievers walk. So what is Paul telling us not to do? He's telling us, do not live like what you used to be, that is, an unbeliever. Here's the reality of the gospel. When Jesus justified us, we died with Him. But we also have at the root of our being the curse of sin that Paul calls the flesh. And it wars against us. This body that you have still has a component of the curse in it. And it will grumble against you. It will war against your soul. So much so that in Romans 7... Paul says that the very things I know I want to do, it's a desire of my heart to obey Jesus. It is so hard to do. But the very thing I don't want to do just happens. And he cries out, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation for the one who wants to follow and it's hard. So the reality is every single one of us in this room, if we are in Christ, will find that it is easy to go back to what this fallen stuff wants. It is easy to give in to being an unbeliever. Paul found that sin came easy. Rebellion came naturally. There's an old song by Buck Owens called Act Naturally. Does anybody know that song? Like three of us? It's on the Remember the Titan soundtrack too. And then for the rest of us raised in the south part of the county, it was like law and gospel, right? I'll play the part of the man who's sad and lonely and all I got to do is act naturally, right? Y'all are singing it. Y'all know the rest of y'all are young people who need to repent and go listen to that song. Right? If you just act naturally, you will act sinful. This, this stuff wants to go that way. Doing right is hard. Staying hidden in the foxhole is easy. Picking your head up out of the foxhole, weapon at the ready, charging toward the mission requires you to overcome the natural inclination to hide. Fighting for the gospel is not natural to this fallen component. Giving into it is easy. Paul reminded the church at Ephesus, just like he reminded the Colossians. In Colossians 1.21, he said, You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's what you once were. And he's going to tell them, don't do that anymore. Colossians 3.7, In these two you once walked. And he listed what they are in verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He said, this is how you once walked when you were living in them. 
But now you've died and your, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Don't do that anymore. Meaning, it will be a propensity for you to do, so don't do it. As he reminded the Colossians, he's reminding the Ephesians that they are not to do what they once were. Verse 18, he's telling them, don't live in a darkened understanding. Don't live in a darkened understanding. He says, those unbelievers, they are darkened in their understanding. If you go back to the third part of verse 17, it tells us why they're darkened in, the un- in, in their understanding. It's because of the futility of their mind. Due to the fact that their mind is futile, it's broken, it's cut off from the knowledge of Jesus Christ, they walk in a darkened understanding. And he's telling them, don't do that. Meaning, it would be very easy and is very easy for us to allow our understanding to remain in the dark and in ignorance and refuse to walk according to Christ. And he's telling them, he's telling us, don't do that. To put it another way, Unbelievers are incapable of thinking on the truth. Truth doesn't rule them. They're in the dark. Lies rule them. Therefore, Paul's instruction to us is the temptation will be to not think on the truth and have a darkened understanding. You are not like that. So therefore, no longer go back to that natural inclination. Walk in the truth. We have to, as followers of Christ, if we're going to walk worthy in this gospel, we have to continually be evaluating if we're living in and making decisions according to the truth or lies. Listen, your culture is, this is, ethos is pervasive. Do you understand that? Culture is pervasive. This is why I say, in some of the writings of our church, we talk about ethos and education. I talk about ethos as opposed to process. Processes are steps that anybody can look at and check them off as having done them. But just because you do the checklist doesn't mean you epitomize the reason for doing it. Ethos, culture, the air you breathe, the patterns that are set, the unspoken set of values are powerful. Your culture that you live inside of, outside of these walls, is pervasive and powerful. The curse is powerful. And that curse tells you lies. It emanates untruth. And most often it's deceptive because it's halfway right. And it sounds good. But hidden in the veneer... Is the pox of death. And so we have to be evaluating. Is this true? Or is this a lie? How do we know that? It's in the manual. It's in the manual. We have to be people of the book. Evaluate. Is this true or is this a lie? If it's a lie. We must put it off. And we'll talk about that in a moment. We have to strive to be applying truth. In every sphere of our existence. Truth is not to be a nice, neat component that you have on Sunday mornings that you live according to. Truth is to rule me tomorrow morning when I wake, when I go to sleep. It is to rule every decision between. We must strive to apply the truth in every sphere of our existence. 
He also tells them here in the second part of verse 18 to not live alienated from life due to the ignorance that is stemming from a hard heart. He says they are darkened in their understanding because of the hard heart, the futility of their minds. And as a result, they're alienated from the life of God. Wow. This hard heart due to the fact in chapter 2 verse 1 that we're dead apart from Christ leads us outside of Christ to death and alienated from the life of God. And Paul says to the church at Ephesus and he says to us, don't live like that. You cannot be alienated from the life of God. Ultimately, a darkened understanding and ignorance are due to the dead man walking. And due to the dead and hard hearts, man lives alienated from God and thus alienated from life. And Paul's reminding them, do not live alienated from the life of God. Now, you're going to ask this question, can I even do that? Can I be alienated from the life of God? Paul's answer is a resounding yes. Yes, you can. Do listen, listen, don't hear, don't hear loss of salvation. Don't hear that. That's not Paul's point. Do hear never been transformed by the gospel. Jesus told us there are weeds among the wheat. Paul tells us here that we must not go back to living a lifeless life. We must not return to the place of ignorant, unbelieving, cut off from the life of God because of the ignorant and hard heart. Do not go, you're not walking worthy if that's where you are. If you're cut off from life, you're cut off from truth, you're cut off from that, you're not walking worthy. And Paul tells us, don't go back there. Meaning, it's possible for weeds to start acting like weeds. Can an unbeliever really act like they believe? See Judas. This is why Paul mixes, this is why this complementary reality, if we, if you're in Christ, you're justified. But the justified put to death sin. They put to death hardness. They put to death callousness. Why? Because they are justified. If you're not in Christ, if you aren't justified, you will not put it to death. You will return to it and live in it and love it more than Jesus. And Paul's reminding the Ephesians, if you're going to walk worthy, this is how you do it. You don't act like an unbeliever. This is why the writer of Hebrews is going to tell them in chapter 6, there were some among you who were present and tasted, they saw, they experienced the powers of the kingdom, but they're not in the kingdom because they turned back. And the rest of you, you were willing to go to prison, chapter 10, and have your stuff plundered because Jesus is better than your stuff. They love stuff more than Jesus, so they quit Jesus. And Paul's saying, don't go back there. 
If you're going to walk worthy, you can't go back to that place. You can't go back to that place. So in verse 19, he's going to tell them, don't be callous. Don't be given up to sensuality, greed, and impurity. With a callous heart, we live according to our senses, not by faith. And that leads to greed and impurity. Listen, church, don't live according to your senses. They're broken. If you live and make decisions according to sensuous sense is what sensuous means, your senses, just what you can see and perceive with this physical body, you are walking in a dangerous place. Paul tells us those who follow Christ live by faith, not by sight. Because these eyes will deceive me. The appearance is Jesus isn't ruling the universe. The Bible tells me Jesus is sovereign over pagan kings and ISIS. Jesus hasn't dropped the reins. Though my eyes may see, what are you doing? So we, we don't live callously according to sensuality, greed, and impurity. You're not trustworthy. Being driven by felt needs lends itself to being what Paul said last week. A wave tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Listen, guys, if you're in Christ, you have no problem putting a stake in the ground. When the Bible puts a stake in the ground and going, I'm here, I'm not moving from here, it's what it is. You're not tossed by every wind of doctrine, every new book that comes out. You're running to the new book and over to this book and over to that book and over here and over there to this preacher and that preacher. Because you're one preacher's Holy Spirit and His inspired Word and the stake is down. And you're not a wave tossed by every wind of doctrine. Because Christ is in you, ruling you well. So we don't live according to sensuality. If we're going to walk worthy in this gospel that unifies us and keeps us one body, we can't live according to our senses. Because I don't know, look around, a lot of different senses in this room. And if I live by my senses, they're going to be opposed to your senses when your senses are different than mine. And during football season, my senses are to be out of here by 12.30 so I can make kickoff at 1. We have a new coach. It'll be a great year. And so when your senses are opposed to my senses, you're standing around fellowshipping and I want you to leave so I can lock up and go home because I got the only key. And so you're going to have to leave. And I'm going to say, come on, y'all can fellowship at Moe's or something and get out of here. i got to go. What happens when your senses are opposed to my senses? Who wins? Me. So I got the key. If you want to get a key and be here the first and be the last to leave, by all means. But as long as I got the key, I win. You see what I'm saying? I can't live according to my senses. They will lie. Right? And so Paul tells them, if you're going to walk worthy, we can't be like those unbelievers who live like this. It's living according to our senses that cause division. It's living according to what we see and perceive culturally. We bring that in that creates division in the church. And we don't do that. Paul says don't live like that. Well, what are we to do? Point number two, we're verse 20 and 21. He says, who are you, Ephesians? Well, here's who the Ephesians are. Here's who we are. We've learned Christ. That's who we are. We've learned Jesus. Listen to this. But... He uses the word but because it's a contrasting word. But that is not the way you learned Christ. 
You learn Jesus, that's not what it was. Jesus doesn't teach sensuality. He doesn't teach ignorance of God. He doesn't teach lifelessness. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Three Rivers Community Church, who are you? If you're in Christ, you've learned Jesus. Colossians 2, 6-7 says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul reminds the Ephesians, You've heard. You've heard. This, this is why... This is why proclamation and teaching is vital. Paul will say it in Romans. You're, you're sent to go proclaim the good news so that by hearing they may believe. There is, there's hearing that needs to take place. And by the way, not just physical hearing, but hearing in the soul. And those are distinct. When Paul tells them they've heard about Christ, he's not simply stating their physical ears have heard about Jesus. He's talking about Matthew eleven fifteen kind of hearing. When Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Meaning those spiritual ears, those that, that, that regenerated soul that truly reverberates with truth, that's good soil that produces a crop leading to 30, 60, 100 fold. Not rocky ground, not hard ground, not crowded ground, but good soil. Soil plowed by the Holy Spirit. Ears opened by the Holy Spirit. So that those words do more than go in one and out the other. But they go in and reach down to the soul of the individual that causes transformation to take place. That's the kind of hearing Paul's talking about. He said, you're not that anymore. This is what you are. You've heard. You've been awakened to life. Your soul is alive. This is Job 42.5 kind of hearing. I love Job 42.5. My top five passages in the whole Bible. Why all of Job? Why all that trash he had to walk through? 42.5. I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. And for Job, all that he lost was worth gazing on the glory of the Lord. That's the kind of hearing Paul's talking about. You heard Jesus. You're transformed. You're fixed. You're different. You're a new creature. Transformation has taken place. So Paul reminds the Ephesians, that's how you are worthy as you've been transformed by the gospel. Three Rivers Community Church, if you're in Christ, you've heard down at the soul level and there's been transformation that's taken place. And Jesus is better. Better than sin. Better than your sensuality. And you're willing to fight that off because Jesus truly is better. Verse 21, he tells us we've been taught in Christ because truth is in Jesus. Just a side note here. It kind of looks like in my notes it's the main point. The connection between truth and teaching here is unmistakable. Verse 21, assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him, comma, as the truth is in Jesus. The, the connection between teaching and truth here is unmistakable. Meaning, all good teaching, and I don't mean in the church, I mean in the school, 
in the university, in the church, and in the home is rooted in the knowledge of God. Now this stands to reason as Christians. The truth is in Jesus. Jesus is God, right? You're tracking Trinitarian theology, right? Jesus is God. If the truth is found in Christ, and He is the creator of all things, Colossians 1, 15, 16, right? Jesus created all things for Himself and for His glory. Then math is intended to point me to Christ. Jesus made numbers. And He made numbers to function. And this is the failure math. If you don't teach math right, I'm not a math person, but this is the failure. If you start with just a formula that has no purpose, you're teaching a kid an atheistic view of math. God made numbers to work, to function, to subdue creation. You don't believe me? Drive over a bridge today. And you're leaning on an engineer to have used a formula correctly to subdue that river and be able to ford that river well. And so you start by understanding numbers have their root in God. And the knowledge of God leads me to make much of numbers because numbers who also can't be seen and held point me to the God who can't be seen and held except by eyes of faith. You've held a two lately? No. Do you believe in twos? You darn straight you do. You're believing them right now. You're sitting. And I guarantee your quads aren't holding your up, your rear end up. Your rear end is firmly planted in that seat, trusting that some engineer did their job. You believe in twos, threes, fours, A squared plus B squared. You believe in it all. Right? Numbers points to the reality of God. Here's my point. The point is, all truth is found in Christ. Math. History, science, it's all in Christ. That's who we are. So that being a Christian pervades everything. There's no place isolated from the knowledge of Jesus. Does that make sense? This should change everything. This changes everything for the church. The truth is found in Christ. All truth teaching emanates from the knowledge of the Godhead. We know that God Himself is the source of truth. We reject all other claims to truth. We hold on to the reality of God's perspective, which is truth. Truth is reality from God's perspective, not mine. It's God's perspective. That's truth. We live in the community of the kingdom, seeking to rescue others by bringing them into that truth. We're willing to die for this truth because all truth is found in Christ. Jesus is our King and Jesus is better. But the main point here, and the primary truth communicated here in verse 21b is that in Christ, we can do verse 22. Listen to it carefully. Assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him, comma, as the truth is in Jesus. Doesn't end the sentence. It's a comma. If your translation has a period, starts a new sentence, it's just, trust me, it's a comma. Because the logical progression is, because we're taught in Jesus, here's what we're taught to do. Verse 22, to put off your old self. That's the primary point of verse 21. Is it because we know the truth, the truth is in Jesus, and we're in Jesus, we now then put off the old self. Which leads us to point three. What are we to do? Okay, we're not to live like the Gentiles, unbelievers. We know Christ. We are in Christ. So we walk worthy in Christ. 
So what are we to do in Christ? Verse 22 to 24. In the truth found in Christ, we put off the old self and put on the new self. Verse 22, we are to put off the old self. Listen to it carefully. Because we're taught in Christ, and the truth is in Jesus, we're taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Meaning, you currently sitting where you're sitting, have remnants of the curse in you, and in Christ, it is your job to put that off. This is the complementary truth of doctrine of justification. We're justified, and because we're justified, we will put sin to death. We will not allow sin to reign. Let me be clear. I can't say this better than John Owen. I've spent all week reading Paul in 1600s English. My brain is fried. Dyslexic people reading Old English is not good. So I can't say this better than John Owen and I can't say it better than John Piper. So I'm going to let them speak for me as I preach to me for a minute. Maybe as I preach to me, you'll hear too. John Owen commenting on Romans 8.13 which says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Go to hell. This is the same Paul who wrote in verse 1, No condemnation in Christ. But if you live according to flesh, you're going to go to hell. Because you haven't been justified. Meaning those who are justified will put the flesh to death. For if you live according to flesh, you will die, comma, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words... Paul says this multiple ways in all of his letters. And here in Ephesians, he says, put off your old self. Because you're in Christ, you're going to put off your old self. So listen to John Owen's commentary. And he wrote a whole book on it. You can go get it. It's cheap. Some of you can probably get the free PDF online. Here's John Owen. Do you mortify? That's 1600 English for you kill. You kill sin. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. John Owen goes on to say, First, believers who are free from the condemning power of sin, I hope that's you, ought to make it their daily work to mortify the in dwelling power of sin. In other words, part of our task daily is to put off the old self. Listen, part of doing the mission, part of staying on mission and being and producing radical followers of Jesus Christ is the killing of sin so that we are living worthily before those we seek to bring into the kingdom. We talk a lot about living in the mission. You hear that a lot. Being and producing radical followers of Jesus. Do the mission. Be engaged in your domain of society. Make disciples in your domain of society. Yes, yes, yes. But while we are doing that, we must be putting to death sin so that we are people who look like we live in the gospel. Not just people who say we live in the gospel. So part of doing the mission is killing sin as well as doing the mission. 
Am I free from sin? Then my daily work is to mortify, kill the indwelling power of sin. I actually threw this out on the Twitter sphere this week. Owen says, The life, vigor, and comfort of the believer's spiritual life depends much on this work of mortifying sin. Did you hear that? My life, my spiritual life. Paul said we're to live in the life of Christ. Not dead to that life. But live in that life. Owen says this life that we have, this vigor... And comfort of the believer's spiritual life depends much on this work of mortifying sin. Could it be the reason there's no joy in Christ is because sin you love more than Jesus? Is there no power present in your life? Could it be that because sin rules in your flesh, not Jesus? Are you lacking in confidence before the Lord? It could be because sin rules in your flesh. John Owen goes on to say, Your being dead with Christ virtually, your being quickened with Him, will not excuse you from this work. Because I'm alive in Christ doesn't excuse me from putting a sword to my sin. And our Savior tells us how His Father deals with every branch in Him that bears fruit. Every true and living branch. He purges it that it may bring forth more fruit. He prunes it. And that not for a day or two, but while it is a branch in this world. In other words, continuously. It is the work of the branch to continually prune itself. By the Father's help to cut off useless pieces. And how does the Apostle tell us that he makes this his practice? 1 Corinthians 9.27 I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. This is what Piper said. I even put this an hour and eight minute long sermon on this on the blog. If you didn't go watch it, repent and go watch it this afternoon. It be the best hour and eight minutes of your life, I promise. He was killed for your sin. You were killed in Him and died to sin. Therefore, kill in yourself every quivering of that corpse of sin, lest you find Him to be no corpse, but a captor in yourself dead. You were killed, or He was killed for your sin, so therefore there's no condemnation. But those who are in Christ, were killed in Him and died in Him, and my life is hidden with Christ in God. And as a result, I must kill in myself every quivering of that corpse of sin. Put a sword in it. Every time it quivers, kill it. Don't pet it. Don't coddle it. Don't play with it. Don't entertain it. Don't feed it. Kill it. Lest you find it be no corpse at all, but actually you are a captor to it. It is our daily work in walking worthy to put off the old self that will seek to grumble and rise from its dead state to kill us. Sin will seek our destruction. We are not good enough. We are not smart enough. We are in Christ. 
And that demands that we stay in Him, that we persevere in Him, and that we do kill sin. I said this a few weeks ago, sin always creates two parties. And in two parties, there is no unity. And unity threatens the church. And if it threatens the church, it threatens Jesus, and Jesus is not into that. So therefore, we must be putting sin to death. Hey, listen, church. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. But for those of us who are in Christ, there's no condemnation. We don't like sin. Listen, if you hold your sin more dear than Jesus, you're probably not a Christian. But if by Christ you seek to put a sword in that quivering corpse, you have great confidence that there truly is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I know that feels heavy. So let me try to put a happy bow on it. This is my experience, and I pray it's yours. I am most miserable when I give in to sin. And that does my heart good. Why? Because if I truly delighted in sin, I would have great reason to fear. But what I find is, the more I beat my body and put it under subjection, the more vigor and life and supernatural strength I have in Christ. The more I seek to put a sword in the quivering corpse, the happier I actually am. I know it's counterintuitive. Our world teaches self-actualization, right? That's the dominating theory behind everything, is you as a person need to be actualized and, and achieve your alone maximum potential. That's an atheistic lie. The Bible doesn't teach us to seek ourselves. It teaches us to seek Christ and to seek each other before we seek ourselves. Does that make sense? And the more we put a sword to sin, the happier we'll actually be. Listen, Jesus didn't say shun all riches, did He? So we have a prosperity theology which is satanic and we have a poverty theology which is satanic. Jesus taught us to store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus taught us to store up as much joy in the next life as we should possibly store up. Didn't He? It is no sin to seek our joy in Christ. It is Jesus' great motivation for holiness. That if we find Jesus more satisfactory, we have stored up for ourselves an investment that cannot go bad. That makes me truly happy. That causes life to enter this broken body. That causes perseverance to take root. That makes me want to really sing. Because this is not all there is. This broken thing will fade away. And death will become my slave to complete sanctification. And bring me into the glorious state of being with Christ forever. That's, that's what Paul's saying here. That's what we do. 
That's how we walk worthy in the gospel. As we live like people who are seeking the kingdom to come and joyously waiting for the king. It'll make you happy. I would argue sin will kill you and make you miserable. Listen, that's how we wrap this thing up real quickly. When Isaiah, just an Old Testament example, right? When Isaiah was besieged in his soul with the death of King Uzziah, in Isaiah 6 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah's greatest need was not a strategy to ease their vulnerability. The weight of Isaiah 6.1 is sometimes lost. We take for granted in our country peaceful transfer of power. We experience it every four years or every eight years. When a new administration comes in, we peacefully transfer power. We're not at risk of being invaded, overtaken. We take that for granted. In the rest of the world, most places don't enjoy a peaceful transfer of power. If a king or an authority dies, there's usually someone seeking to take over. And all hell breaks loose for several years. It was no different in Isaiah's time. The Assyrian threat is real. The Babylonian threat is growing. And Uzziah's dead. And what is Isaiah's temptation is to go and find a way out from under this mess. But Isaiah goes into the temple. And his greatest need was not a strategy to ease their vulnerability. Isaiah's greatest need was what the Lord provided for him, and that was to see who the real king really was. So Isaiah says, in the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And the seraphim flew around and their wings beat and the threshold of the temple was shaking as they cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah's greatest need was not a strategy. It was to see the King of Kings sitting on His throne, ruling the Assyrians, ruling the Babylonians, and ruling His people well. Listen, Three Rivers Community Church, your greatest need is not the strategy we're going to give you next week. Nine points and some on fighting sin and putting off the old self. We're going to give you some things to do. But before you get some things to do, your greatest need is to see and savor Jesus Christ as the one in whom you live and where your life is found. Colossians 3, 3, you have died. And your life, your vigor, your strength, Your spiritual growth is hidden with Christ in God. Your greatest need this morning is to see and savor Jesus Christ as the King of the universe and the King of your soul and the King of His church. It's your greatest need. So right now, as we started, my prayer is that this morning you've seen a glimpse of the holiness of the Lord. And that He has captivated you with who He is. And He has enraptured your soul with who He is so that you can come and make much of Him. Psalm 147.1 tells us, Praise the Lord. Praise Him. It's good to sing praises to our God. It's a good thing. And it is pleasant 
And a song of praise is fitting. It's fitting that God's people who are in Christ, who are putting off the old self, sing to Him and praise Him for what He has done. If you're in Christ, let me just say this, you're, you don't have an option. Your heart wants to sing. If you're not in Christ, my prayer is that you sing Christ and you're coming to savor Him and you will trust in Him and believe in Him and He will transform you from the inside out and cause you to want to put a sword in the quivering corpse.